Well, welcome everyone uh, to uh, the Norris Cotton Cancer Center Grand Rounds. would like to welcome everyone who's here in the room and also those who are joining us uh, remotely. Uh, before getting started, I would just like to read the um, conflict of interest statement. Uh, Dr. Jarvis, uh, who is presenting today, does not have any financial conflicts of interest uh, in commercial entities or otherwise in regards to this presentation. Uh, she reports she does not intend to discuss off-label use, although she will be discussing investigational uses of a product or device. Uh, and she attests that she is not receiving any direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. Um, so you know, at the end of the presentation, we'll be taking questions and answers. Those watching remotely will have an opportunity to ask questions as well. And for CME credit, the barcodes today aren't working. So if you want CME credit, you'll have to actually sign in physically at the end of the session. Uh, you all are, of course, encouraged to do, th do so if you want CME. So that takes care of the um, uh, housekeeping. But um, now it's my joy and pleasure uh, to and honor to introduce to you Dr. Leslie Jarvis uh, for today's Cancer Center Grand Rounds. She will be presenting breast radiotherapy, reducing side effects, and improving safety. A little bit of background, and I don't want to take too much time, but it's always nice to know some of the high points of, of your speaker. Uh, she joined us here at Dartmouth in 2008. Uh, prior to that, she was actually raised on a farm, that being Stanford in California, <laughs> where she was. Well, you know, the alums call it the farm. It used to be a horse farm. Um, and it hasn't changed all that much. Uh, <laughs> um, just, you know, it's a little fancier now. Um, but, you know, she was there for 14 years. And she received two doctorates, her MD and also a PhD, and also did her residency at a, a very excellent residency program in radiation oncology uh, at Stanford. Uh, most of you may know that. Most of you may not know that she actually has New England roots. Uh, she grew up in Massachusetts in Chelmsford and uh, then attended Middlebury College in Vermont, uh, where she graduated in 1992. Some somewhere along the way, she picked up her husband, Bill, and then carried him off to California, where they spent um, more than a decade before coming back. Uh, here at Dartmouth, she has distinguished herself in just six years as an extraordinarily productive researcher and teacher, as well as a clinical leader. Um, she has authored or co-authored no less than 19 original peer-reviewed publications, seven of which in the last two years. Uh, she is currently PI for um, a clinical trial, uh, imaging surface dose and post-lumpectomy breast irradiation, and uh, authoring another one on cheronchoscopy. She has also further experience in clinical trials, has been a co-PI in two other studies, one looking at VEGF immunomodulation in GBM uh, brain patients, and another looking at the use of partial breast irradiation for patients with phylloides tumors. Uh, she has also authored several clinical trials um, investigate or looking at investigational devices in preparation for um, FDA uh, inv investigational device exemptions. Uh, these related to work on uh, measurement of oxygenation in tissue uh, and outgrowth of work with Hal Schwartz's uh, EPR lab. She's been awarded several grants. She's very successful in achieving grant funding. Uh, that internally through the Dart Dartmouth Center for Clinical and Translational Sciences, through the American Cancer Society, and through the Cancer Center uh, Developmental Funds. In addition, she is a um, co-PI on um, a couple of uh, NCI trials, uh, working with Dr. Schwartz and others. Uh, she's also a great teacher. She has mentored some really exceptional students who have gone on already to uh, successful uh, further careers, uh, stepping beyond medical school and their PhDs. Uh, she has also um, actually uh, run a course uh, for the Geisel students um, and continues to do so in the Breast Cancer Multidisciplinary Care Program. As a clinical leader, uh, she is the, our head radiation oncologist uh, for both breast and lymphoma programs and works very tightly with those interdisciplinary programs. Um, and I would just mention that many of you may not realize, outside of our little world of radiation oncology, 
that she's done truly exceptional service in the development of um, a software uh, uh, that is an outgrowth of some uh, variant products and to the point which has totally streamlined our work processes, uh, made us a real flagship uh, in radiation oncology clinical service and has led to um, many other physicians from around the country coming to visit us to see how the heck we're doing what we're doing. Uh, on a personal level, it is my great pleasure to work with this uh, exceptional physician. And uh, without further ado, and taking already too much time, um, I welcome uh, Dr. Jarvis. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, so um, let's see. Should let me know if you can't hear me. I talk loud, and I think this is working. Um, and I'm going to just get started. So um, this is the conflict of interest statement. And I wanted to start first with, you know, the landscape of breast cancer nowadays, and especially local regional involvement of breast cancer. So that's the first two. Let's see if this is, there we go. Um, the first two bars here. So if a woman, and this is where radiation therapy, especially this talk, is uh, plays an important role. So if a woman's um, diagnosed with breast cancer now and she has localized disease, meaning to the breast itself, there's a 98% chance that she's going to be alive in the next five years. Um, for regional disease, that certainly drops off, but it's 84%. You know, a lot of cancers um, that other people here in the room um, work with or study, we don't have these kinds of good um, outcomes. The two that I work with, lymphomas and breasts, do. Um, and it, we start to think about a whole new set of problems when, a, when we do so well, when a cancer is either so benign or our treatments are so good that we get to very good survival rates. We have to start thinking about toxicity. At what, um, at what point are we causing more harm than good? Are we causing too much toxicity? Are we over-treating these patients? And that's what today's talk is going to be about. But I do want to mention that when I talk about five-year survival for breast cancer, some cancers, that's okay to talk about a five-year survival for breast cancer. It's not. We need to think about the 10, 15, even 20 to 30-year survival, because that's how long patients live after, survive with breast cancer, but it's also, um, there's a recurrence rate that continues, you know, so other cancers that you might say, if you get to the five-year point, you're unlikely to recur. Breast cancer, that's not true. There's, um, it's almost linear going out to 20 years. So if you take your five-year survival rate or five-year local recurrence rate, know that by 10 years, it's going to be doubled. And that'll be kind of a theme as we look at numbers going through here. So what's the role of radiation in these great outcomes of breast cancer? Um, well, surgery removes the macroscopic disease. However, microscopic tumor foci can remain in the breast, chest wall, or regional lymph node, and if left untreated would lead to recurrence and potentially life-threatening distant disease or both. Um, I'm going to talk about... So when I was trained in radiation, uh, breast radiation, I had to memorize... 20 trials just to tell you the information I'm going to tell you. Now I don't have to because um, a group called the Early Breast Cancer Trialist Group got together, consolidated all of these trials in a meta-analysis. So what they looked at is um, the role of radiation after lumpectomy and the role of radiation after mastectomy. They um, took individual, which is why this is so powerful, individual patient data from all of the big randomized studies, and the studies were randomized for radiotherapy after lumpectomy versus no radiotherapy, or radiotherapy to the chest wall and lymph nodes versus same, but um, no radiation therapy. So for post-mastectomy, we have 17 trials, 10,000 women, I'm sorry, post-lumpectomy for post-mastectomy, 22 trials, 8,000 women. So these are very powerful analyses. And what did they find? Well, um, there's a good benefit of radiation after lumpectomy. So it turns out that there's a local control, so no radiation versus radiation, 15% benefit at 10 years um, by receiving the radiation in terms of local control. But everybody says, well, you know, so what? You can make sure this doesn't come back in the breast, but you know, you could salvage these with surgery. Does local control matter? So if you look out at 15 years, there's a survival benefit. Um, 
Postlumpectomy, it's a small survival benefit, 3.8% here. The way we think about it, another way to think about it is for every four recurrences you prevent, um, you will save one life. A, and I just, I'm going to talk about this a little more. Just know that this is the breast cancer <laughs> survival rate. This is survival rate from any cause. And you can kind of see something going on here. And I'll talk about it later. So I'm just pointing it out now as a preview. Um, the trialist group went ahead and said, well, does everybody benefit? So this is looking at um, subgroups. So we have age here. So from younger to older, grade of tumor, low, intermediate, high, low, intermediate, high, um, T1 tumors, T2 tumors. And what you're seeing, what, all you have to kind of look at on this, I know there's a lot of um, graphs, the pink. The light pink is the benefit of radiation. So you can see it in any group that they looked at, ER positive but not taking tamoxifen, ER negative, ER positive um, that had a large surgery, um, and ER positive with tamoxifen. There's a benefit to every group, but you can kind of see there's different benefits, right? So if we start looking at um, even something like this, we're gonna talk a lot about this later. There's, you know, radiation improves the local control for this patient, but we're starting at a low number and our absolute benefit's low. So we have to figure out, you know, even though there's benefit to every patient, does every patient need radiation? Um, they also looked at, you know, is it just no um, positive patients, higher risk, or no negative patients? And again, local um, control benefit is seen in both groups, and um, both groups have an overall survival benefit. Again, our, if you look at our graphs, of course, the node positives are going to be starting at a higher level than the node negative patients. So that's our um, after lumpectomy. Well, what about after radiation? Uh, after mastectomy. Um, we've known for a long time and everybody accepted the fact that after mastectomy, um, if you had four, four or more positive lymph nodes, there was both a local control and an overall survival benefit to radiation. But before this, there was a lot of debate about the one to three positive nodes. We call this the gray zone. You know, do these patients really benefit? The funny thing is, when I first looked, I was told no, no, no. And then you look through all the papers and say, well, there is a benefit. But everybody kind of um, said, oh, this surgery in Europe wasn't good then, this or that. But um, again, this trialist group brought all the known um, randomized trials together and showed again in the one to three positive lymph nodes you have your local control benefit as well as a survival benefit. And people said yes but you know back some of those studies were old patients weren't getting systemic therapy if you gave them systemic therapy that would overcome that difference again so they did that they uh, just took the group of women with one to three positive nodes who received a systemic therapy and again local control benefit to radiation um, and a survival benefit okay so just told you radiation's good let's give it to everybody well, maybe not. Um, there are potential toxicities from breast radiation. First of all, acute toxicities, which almost all of the patients um, experience, but actually we worry a little bit less about these because they are temporary and they will get better. So what are they? Uncomfortable skin reactions. You can see this after lumpectomy or mastectomy. We get some skin peeling, desquamation. Um, patients get tired. And then this is something we're more and more having to think about, the time and money, you know, cost of the healthcare system and the time for the patient. You know, do there are some patients who, you know, this is a hardship to come in every day for, let's say, six and a half weeks of radiation. Um, longer term, these are side effects that we can't, we really don't have good treatments for. Um, radiation fibrosis, this is just scar tissue in the treatment area. After mastectomy, it can cause um, functional um, effect on the shoulder after lumpectomy it can cause cosmetic changes so and I'm going to talk about the cardiac effects of uh, radiation on left-sided patients it's very controversial we'll get into it more but again this comes into this difference here you know what people were finding is that this improvement with radiation the improvement in overall survival and radiation could sometimes 
um, disappear <laughs> with longer time points. And it seemed like the patients were dying of other things other than the breast cancer. And what, what is that? Well, turns out it's cardiac from the cardiac effects. And we're going to find out that actually we do really well nowadays, but we'll get there. Lymphedema is a big quality of life problem for patients, and we're going to talk about that. Um, second malignancy is very rare, 1 in 10,000. Um, that's, you have to think about that every time we tell a patient they need radiation, we think about that risk. Um, but I'm not actually going to talk about that today. Okay, so how do we maintain these good outcomes yet reduce our treatment-related toxicities? Well, there are things that the um, entire field of radiation oncology is doing, and I'm calling these the national trends. Um, we think about emitting radiation for low-risk patients, and um, these are the four topics we're going to go into detail about. We um, are reducing the number of radiation treatments, which reduces the costs of the treatments, minimizing re-excisions for close margins. This is more of a surgical um, issue, but we'll talk about that again because radiation has been involved in that decision. And then um, there's been a lot of changes in the management of the axilla. Uh, next, I'll talk about a technical approach to reducing toxicity, specifically cardiac sparing, and then two research projects that we're doing here at Dartmouth. But I'm going to stress this is kind of a shock and awe um, slide. I'm going to stress the importance of maintaining good outcomes. This is what one of my mentors told me in training. The worst side effects you can have from radiation is a tumor recurrence. These are not salvageable. If you have axillary chest wall recurrences, um, we manage them. None of us, you know, they're not good for, for anybody. They're very difficult situations, and we want to avoid them um, whenever possible. Okay, so the first um, national trend is to consider, and I'm going to really say consider omitting radiation therapy in low-risk patients who are over 70 years old. Um, so why is this? For a long time in radiation, we were looking for groups of patients who didn't need radiation after a lumpectomy. Um, but every trial that came out said, nope, you need radiation. There's a 30 to 40 percent recurrence rate if you don't, and radiation, and that's too high, you know, and radiation reduces that. But then a few trials came out that really selected the patients. So you had to be, for this trial, over 70 years old. You had to have a T1 tumor and at least clinically, uh, sorry, ER positive and clinically node negative. Um, patients were randomized to TAM or TAM plus, TAM's tamoxifen or tamoxifen plus radiation. Um, these are similar trials, but again, a little younger age, larger tumors, little younger age, um, but all good risk um, patients. And what they're finding in these trials is that, yes, of course, radiation benefits. We know that benefits in every patient, but the absolute benefit, because they're at such low risk, is pretty low. Again, remember the idea that five years isn't quite enough, 12 years isn't quite enough either. These are going to keep increasing as we go ahead. But you can you know, estimate your 20-year results from this. Um, just so you know, these two trials were back-to-back -back on the New England Journal of Medicine. This one said, hey, look, uh, not everybody needs radiation. This one says, hey, look, everybody needs radiation. So even interpreting these results, um, it can be challenging. So, just for this over 70 group, not all breast cancers in this group are the same. So you have to remember to um, look at risk factors. The other thing to remember nowadays is that a woman who is 70 years old, just all comers, has a 15-year life expectancy. So again, we're not thinking about the five-year um, local control rates anymore. We have to think about 15-year or longer in some patients. Another big issue, so I showed you on that slide that, let's see if I can do that, that everybody who didn't have radiation was, had to have tamoxifen. Well, a group at Kaiser looked and said, um, are, are people taking their tamoxifen when we give it to them? Turns out the, the adherence rate for, um, for endocrine therapy in their population, which is, a, you know, Kaiser tends to be a working population um, who's coming to see their doctors, et cetera, it's 49% adherence rate. Um, we'll talk about the cost effectiveness. Sometimes at tumor boards we say, oh, you know, we're over treating these patients. Is it cost effective for um, our healthcare system to treat these? It's complicated, um, but actually there is data that supports the use of radiation in um, these patients. 
And um, one thing that's always stressed is in this, this uh, low risk over 70 group, there's no impact on overall survival. But remember, there are other things besides survival, additional surgeries, um, specifically salvage mastectomies if there's a recurrence. So if we go back to that uh, great um, analysis, the early breast cancer trialist group, um, I've highlighted the over 70 groups. Now, if you look at this, um, there is quite a benefit to radiation if you have high-grade disease, you're over 70, you have high-grade disease, and you're not taking estrogen, uh, tamoxifen or something like that. Again, you know, pretty good too with just even if you are taking your tamoxifen, but you have um, um, high-grade disease. So again, it's not just a one-size-fits-all. You can't say, oh, you're over 70 with breast cancer. Let's not treat you with radiation. Um, so the next three slides, I'm definitely stepping out of my comfort zone, especially here at Dartmouth, where there are experts on these. But you know, it's coming up nowadays, and I'm at least trying to get myself and everybody else in the group familiar with the cost of radiation. But I'm sure experts can, can tell us more about the caveats of these studies. Um, so it's just a simple one published in abstract. Well, how much do these cost? Um, and I just want to make it, uh, you know, something that I was surprised at. Radiation in five years of an um, aromatase inhibitor, actually, radiation wins in terms of the cost. Tamoxifen, much, much in, uh, lower cost, but um, they, the authors say this does not include the <laughs> cost of toxicity for tamoxifen, which um, I know our oncologists are very good at selecting patients who won't have this complication. But if you gave tamoxifen to all patients on uh, the older trials, there was usually about three deaths from a pulmonary embolism. Um, so that factor is not in their cost analysis. Another way of looking at this is um, number needed to treat. So if we look at the 70 to 74-year-old patients um, who have low comorbidities, they, you actually only need to treat about in the tw 20 patients in order to avoid one recurrence. Um, again, same with even the 75 to 79 group. And um, as the authors point out, this is comparable to other interventions like giving an antihypertensive medication to, um, <coughs> to uh, women in, in which 21 women require 10 years of treatment to prevent one coronary heart disease event. So, you know, we're not withholding antihypertensive um, medications from older, you know, over 70-year-old patients. Are we, so why should we say, you know, you're in, the, in these groups? Maybe it is cost-effective to treat with radiation. We know there's a benefit, and so here is a much more sophisticated analysis and um, this is a group from Yale, and what they did is they um, did each group and said if you had zero, one, two, or three comorbidities, your chance of being alive in 10 years is either 75%, 50%, 25 to 50%. And apparently, um, your quality-adjusted life year um, is basically, so here's the line where people have said, the payers have said, this is where it's worth, $50,000. For anybody over 70 with just that, uh, with no comorbidities, or 70 to 80 um, with none or one to two comorbidities, we're there, we're under the, um, the cost effectiveness. So as the authors say, despite concerns about overuse of radiation in older population, we found that external beam radiation is generally a cost-effective therapy for older women with early-stage breast cancer. Um, this is from MD Anderson, and again, they show that um, their rate of mastectomy was about in half for those patients who received radiation in that over 70 group of patients. So, you know, this is controversial at our tumor boards, um, but what I um, try to encourage is individualized decisions regarding radiation for patients over 70. 
This is, requires a risk, uh, an assessment of several factors, including their pathologic factors, their medical age, meaning life expectancy and comorbidities, and their commitment to a full course of endocrine therapy. For most patients, I think this is best to have this d detailed discussion analysis by a radiation oncologist and make that decision um, together to decide whether, um, whether radiation is in the patient's best interest or not. This, on the other hand, is a topic that I'm much more enthusiastic about in terms of um, changing treatment practices for our patients. So hypofractionation for breast treatment. So what is fractionation? This is how we divide up our radiation dose. So you have a dose, you divide it up into lots of little pieces and give it once a day for 33 treatments, or on the extreme, um, intraoperative radiotherapy for breast cancer is a single um, treatment. Uh, typically, when we're talking about this nowadays, we're talking about about three weeks of treatment versus six and a half weeks of treatment. Um, historically, UK and Canada had developed their radiation to be shorter, to be more like these three to four week treatment schedules. The US had um, developed it to be more the five or six um, weeks. And it's hard to change when you've been doing something for decades. So we finally have, or at least are changing. So there's now four randomized controlled trials from UK and Canada that all support a shorter treatment schedule for early stage breast cancer. This includes 7,000 patients on these trials, and they're all compared um, the local control rates to a standard dose of um, 50 gray and 25 fractions. I just do want to point this out. These are our four trials, um, that they are low-risk patients. So age over 50, um, T1, T2s, most are uh, node-negative, but not all of them. And this is changing with time, in, especially in these two in, in Europe and Canada. Uh, a lot of patients didn't have chemotherapy. You have to be careful with radiation. It has to be um, what we call good radiation planning or uh, very homogenous dose. And uh, not a lot of the patients had high-grade tumors. So when you send somebody to us and we end up not treating with the short fractionation schedule, just remember that we are somewhat limited. Even though we have four great um, clinical trials, we're a little bit limited for certain patient populations on, on if it is the same outcome. But uh, I'm going to just focus on the Canadian trial because this is what we've been following there's the same chance of having um, an in-breast tumor recurrence, so 7%, regardless of whether you have the short or the long treatment schedule. And all the toxicities are the same. So they looked at cosmesis, skin changes, subcutaneous tissue changes, pneumonitis, or root fractures. All, it doesn't matter. There are some side effects to radiation, um, but they are, um, it didn't matter which, um, which treatment schedule you got. So now we've gotten to the point, um, if you haven't heard of the Choosing Wisely campaign, this is um, each specialty is putting together, um, I guess, five at a time. Radiation oncology is now down, now up to 10 um, kind of recommendations that you're supposed to talk about. Actually, it's really for the patients, for them to bring up to their doctor, hey, what about this? And um, one of the very early ones that uh, is on the radiation oncology list now don't initiate whole breast radiotherapy as part of breast conservation in women over 50 with early stage breast cancer without considering shorter treatment schedules. So um, this is now on our Choose Wisely campaign. Um, and I wanted to point out, there's two other breast cancer recommendations on this campaign, and neither of them are don't treat for patients over 70. So again, this is kind of circling back to our previous topic, but um, that is still controversial, and I'm kind of bringing this up because it's an active question in our tumor boards. But um, so how are we doing as especially in adopting this recommendation? We now have ASTRO support for it. We have a Choosing Wisely campaign. So a group looked and said, OK, how's the US doing on um, doing these shorter fractionation schedules? They divided the groups into ones uh, that we really know. There we go. Um, so that the hypofractionation is endorsed, we're asking people to do this and to change, and that it's also permitted. We really think it's okay for this, um, you know, younger group, those with chemotherapy or node involvement. But you know, we're okay if people want to take some time and be conservative before adopting it. Well, <laughs> we're not doing great. Um, in 2000, so the trend's going up. That's good. 
2008, what we'll probably hear about 10% for those endorsed and permitted, um, but we're still under 40% um, of patients in this country getting hypofractionated um, radiation. And just as a note, at this time, in 2008 in Canada, this number would be up here. So we don't think the patients or the breast cancer is different, it's just the comfort level of radiation oncologists. And do you save money with this hyperfractionation? We, you know, it's more, more treatments. Each treatment sort of like a pill. The more pills you have, it costs more money. So yes, if if everybody was getting radiation um, in shorter fractions, uh, fractionated courses, we'd be saving money for the healthcare system. It's about ten percent um, less. Okay, so margins for breast conserving surgery. Margins that means. Um, we always say we want a rim of normal tissue around the tumor. It tells you you got the whole tumor out at surgery. It's funny, this is definitely a surgical issue, but for some reason the radiation oncologists have been the police for this, um, which I don't like being in that position, but now it's changed and it's a little easier. Um, the, um, for some background, one in four women attempting breast-conserving therapy undergo re-excision, or at least before this consensus. And nearly half are just for a more widely clear margin. So they already had a negative margin, and the surgeons are going back to just take a wider margin. Um, but the, a group of experts got together and say, hey, you know, with impro everything's improving with our systemic therapies, better understanding of who needs systemic therapies based on molecular subtypes. Um, we're just we're seeing much lower rates of in breast tumor recurrence. And do all these women really need to be going back when they already have such a low rate of tumor recurrence? So um, the group got together, did a meta-analysis, again, of 33 um, trials, 28,000 patients. They found that the in breast tumor recurrence was 5.3. And then the important thing that they tried to really find and could not find in here is a threshold distance. How big does that margin need to be? one millimeter, two millimeter, five millimeters. They could never find a difference. So now, um, they, both the Society of Radiation Oncology and the Society of Surgical Oncology came um, up with their consensus statements saying that first of all, a positive margin is bad. It increases the risk of an in-breast tumor recurrence by twofold. And that doesn't matter, because some of us maybe thought, oh, if somebody was such low risk with favorable histology, I'm giving extra radiation in a boost dose, I'm giving chemotherapy or endocrine therapy. No, none of that mattered. It, uh, it was still increased by twofold. So no matter what, if you have a positive margin, you need a re-excision. But the more widely clear margins didn't seem to make a difference. So now we're back at saying, um, and this is how we were back when the NSABP trial started, that a negative margin was defined as no tumor at the ink. We're back with that, and this recommendation should decrease re-excision rates, improve cosmetic outcomes, and decrease healthcare costs. So again, it should be a win-win for everybody. But as we saw that um, some um, people are slow to adopt these um, recommendations. I know in our tumor boards for invasive breast cancer, we have adopted this recommendation. Okay, the last for the national trend is um, management of the axilla. Again, this is a surgical and, um, and radiation oncology problem. And it's probably the one that uh, is changing the most and most controversial, um, but just to give a little background, um, when a woman was diagnosed with breast cancer, she would traditionally have a level one, two, possibly a level three axillary dissection. Um, that was regardless of the lymph node status. So what surgeons were finding is they take out 20 lymph nodes, they were all negative. The woman got um, lymphedema, had poor quality of life from this, and there was no need for it. So then this was replaced by the sentinel lymph node biopsy, um, which is now, uh, our surgeons can correct me, but because um, it, it's improving all the time, there's a false negative rate of less than 5% and a greater than 90% identification rate. What happens, a woman with a negative sentinel lymph node is able to avoid further surgery. We know whether or not we have the prognostic information on whether or not she needs chemotherapy based on lymph node status. Um, that's negative. And then, um, and then the, much of the morbidity is avoided. If she has a positive sentinel lymph node, she would go on, traditionally gone on to completion axillary dissection. And this is what has changed. So we thought those completion axillary dissections were maybe therapeutic, 
Maybe they help guide our radiation fields. We always said, well, with four more lymph nodes positive, we would then treat the entire lymph node region, and maybe it would change um, systemic therapy um, or outcomes. But as it turns out, this has changed dramatically. So what happens now if a woman has a sentinel lymph node that's positive? We have um, two studies that have randomized so you've taken, you have a sentinel lymph node biopsy that's positive. Half the women got radiation um, alone and only to the tangents, meaning only to the breast. And the other half of the women got an axillary dissection followed by the radiation. A second trial um, had, again, you had your um, clinically node negative patients, but then they had sentinel node that turned out positive. This trial included mastectomy patients, so it was low numbers, but it could be either lumpectomy or mastectomy. And this, this group, you either had your axillary lymph node dissection or you had axillary radiation. So instead of, um, instead of just breast radiation, you had breast plus uh, regional lymph node radiation. Um, so the first one is the 11 trial. Um, it was, um, the important part about this is that there was, um, it's low risk patients. T1, most had T1 tumors, most were estrogen receptor positive, um, most had only one positive sentinel lymph node, um, some had even just micrometastasis. Um, well, you know, how they do. No difference in overall survival, whether you had the um, axillary dissection or not, and no difference in local control local regional control. So less than 1% chance of, of failing in the axilla, regardless of whether you had the sentinel lymph node dissection or the only or the, um, or the axillary lymph node dissection. Um, just a kind of an interesting note is for those patients who had the axillary dissection, 27% had positive nodes in there in addition to that sentinel node. So we're leaving at least 27, in 27% of the patients, we're leaving disease behind. Um, and 14% of those four or more, so, you know, significant amount of disease. But yet they're only failing at, you know, less than 1% rates. So why is this? It's, it's hypothesis, but that, the, that perhaps that disease is clinically irrelevant or that it's being taken care of by the systemic therapy that, that patients are getting. And also um, radiation really does cover this area, and people do think... Um, that this is probably an important part. So the radiation, um, just because of the breast anatomy and the low-level lymph node anatomies, radiation covers it. Um, so that's the Z11 trial that says, hey, it's okay to just after a positive sentinel lymph node that you can treat with tangents alone. The AMRO study, same patient population, and if you really look through, it really is the same patient population, um, except for the fact that they had some of these mastectomy patients. And, um, and then the only difference was, again, the, um, the fact that um, for the radiation fields, they were covering more of the nodal area. And again, your axillary recurrence rates are 1% or less. Um, otherwise, no difference in disease-free survival or overall survival. But this was the big difference, and I'll show you a, um, the graph of it. Um, one, three, and five years after your treatment, if you had the axillary lymph node dissection compared to the axillary radiation, your um, rate of lymphedema is about cut in half. So um, as a famous radiation oncologist said, the AMROS trial provides very important evidence that the kind of regional nodal treatment after a positive sentinel lymph node biopsy will not substantially affect the risk for subsequent re regional nodal failure, rates of metastasis-free breast cancer specific or overall survival in most patients. We always have to get ourselves a wiggle room and say, no, no, <laughs> we still want to do something else. Um, Okay, so what are we doing now? Um, the only patients getting axillary dissections are those with like palpable nodes um, or for patients who are found to have gross extracapsular extension. Of course, a lot of these patients are getting neoadjuvant chemotherapy now, and that's a whole nother talk. Um, and then as for positive axillary lymph node dissections, this, um, there's certainly evidence in, and what we're doing is they don't need uh, completion dissection. Um, but how does this change our radiation recommendations? You know, there's this one other study that I'm just going to go through very quickly. And um, 
this just gives us all pause that there's, um, of course, I don't think they've still published it, but the Canadian group has done this MA20 study and they keep presenting it um, in abstract form, but not in publication. And they say that high, they've taken high risk node negative or node positive patients and they've randomized them to whole breast radiation with or without regional nodal involvement, uh, re regional nodal treatment. So this is saying, does, you know, is it important to cover that whole the whole nodal region um, in breast cancer? Um, and they actually had improvement in disease-free survival, local regional control, distant metastasis, and a trend towards improvement in survival if you covered the whole um, lymph node region. So we're at a little bit of a, um, of a question of what to do. We know you don't need to complete the dissections based on these two trials, but do you give just tangents alone or do you treat um, the whole axillary region like amaros. One thing we do know is that we are cutting the rate of lymphedema essentially in half, regardless of which way we do it. Um, so typically we go through um, something like this. If a patient is really low risk, we treat tangents only. We start going up high tangents, and you start adding more lymph node treatment the higher risk they are. This is going to change, though. That these tables and recommendations are not necessarily um, proven by data yet, but they're kind of our best guess of what to do at this point, given the new data. Okay, next topic, the cardiac, cardiac effects from breast cancer. Uh, this is a picture from the cover of The Economist, I believe, it's some month, and I love it because the one thing a radiation oncologist would not do if we could remove the heart from a patient when we were treating is re treat the heart. We'd actually treat probably everything but. Um, so we are, uh, you know, for a long time, there's been, you know, decades and decades of research uh, of clinical trials on this. And there started to kind of consistently see a trend that um, the breast cancer survival benefit of radiation was outweighed by something else that pretty much kept the curves um, equal. And it really is, um, probably the cardiac effect of old radiation techniques. So if you look at this, the way people have studied this is left versus right um, breast cancer treatment. Um, so, and this is a, a great summary. If you look at um, patients, so first of all, you want your controls to be patients who have breast cancer because they may have gotten adriamycin, other cardiac toxicity um, causing agents. Um, so if you take patients who had breast cancer and no radiation therapy and compared cardiac deaths left to right, um, you have this as your cardiac mortality ratio. You just look along the line. And this, you know, even 15 years out, we're right along that line. But then you take the ones who had radiotherapy and compared left to right. And as you go from a few years out to 15 years, you can see left-sided patients are doing worse. Now, this is also from you know, decades ago, 73 to 82 is when they were diagnosed. And with each, you know, decade later, we're doing a little better and a little better. But this brings up the caveat of studying um, cardiac toxicity in breast cancer. You have to wait 20 to 30 years to know if what you're doing is having an effect. And um, so even these patients who, you know, they don't have, we're only at 10 years for this group in terms of data collection. Um, so... It's a difficult problem to study. By the time you're studying the problem, you've moved on and you're doing something differently anyway. So um, we really do think we're doing better um, with new techniques. At the time when this was started, you know, these old techniques, patients didn't have a CT scan. Nobody knew where their heart was and they didn't pay attention to treating, you know, avoiding the heart at that time. So now we do. Um, I just wanted to remind people, and we'll probably go through this a little quicker, but this is still coming up, though. You know, when something makes a New England Journal of Medicine, everybody starts asking me again, you know, oh, are, are, is it okay for me to send my left-sided breast patients to you? Are you having, you know, is it, you know what's going to happen in 20 years? Well, just know that this came out um, a couple of years ago and that this was all, again, still old data. Um, it was a case control study from Europe. And um, really what they did is take the women who had breast cancer who had a cardiac event and um, their controls were women with breast cancer who didn't have a cardiac event. And it was not, it was all old techniques, pre-CT planning, and therefore they just took an idealized 
uh, woman's anatomy and tried to recreate the radiation plans that were given decades before and then come up with um, a risk estimate. And, um, I'm sorry, wrong way. And what they found out, which I think is right, that they're, um, that the rate of a major coronary artery event increased by 7.4% for each increase of one gray um, in the mean radiation dose delivered to the heart. But that doesn't mean that that's what's happening nowadays. There are heart doses that they calculated were higher than we give nowadays. Um, so if right now our current practice is for right-sided patients, all, we've always had mean heart doses less than one gray. For left-sided patients, we do cardiac sparing, and our goal is to keep the mean heart dose um, to one gray or less. How do we do this? It's kind of a neat technique. Um, but uh, first, just to show you the anatomy, it's the, if you, follow, if you pay attention, the left anterior descending coronary artery lives right here. That's the one that's right underneath the chest wall. So if you can avoid that, it means you're avoiding the heart. But it's both the uh, microvascular and macrovascular disease that can happen after radiation. So you do want to avoid the heart and the LAD. But really, if you follow the LAD, you're going to do okay. Um, it turns out that there's a simple technique. Your heart anatomy all changes by taking a deep breath. So this is a patient who's in free breathing CT scan. The heart's colored in red. She takes a deep breath. Um, there's a few things that are going on here. Your, your chest wall is expanding. The breast tissue is coming further away from the heart. Your, di your diaphragm is going down and pulling your heart long and thin, pulling it away from the chest wall. So you have kind of two motions going on that separate um, your heart from your breast. And so here's a, a picture of the LAD. We are zoomed in here. This is expiration. This is inspiration. And you really get your benefit from a deep inspiration breath hold. So now the woman takes a deep breath, and we can just sneak our radiation field in to cover this area, and the heart's out of the way. Not every patient. You know, this is why every radiation plan we do is unique and done by expert radiation dissymmetrists. <laughs> this is um, an example of a um, patient we had here, a very young patient, had a positive IM node. This is our MRI scan, but you can see, so which means it's prone, so the heart's probably artificially pushed closer, but you can see how close that IM node is to her heart here. These are the hardest cases, because now not only do you have to treat that left breast, but you have to treat the whole IM node chain that runs right on top of the heart. So um, I just wanted to show you quickly that we tried, and this is the group of people who probably tried, I think Mo did every one of you, or at least part of these plans. Um, we uh, looked at just a typical technique, deep tangents. We looked at um, a VMAT, a fancy type of radiation. These are our heart doses as we go, go down with these different techniques. Just, we could do a simple technique by just having the patient be treated in deep inspiration breath hold. And we reduced, and I told you we do try to keep our heart doses to one, um, Gray, most patients don't need IM node treatment. That's right, especially those low IM node treatments that this patient has. Three Gray is actually what the national standard is for regular left breast treatment um, without any IM node treatment. So this is great for a patient with IM node involvement. Okay, I think we're still doing okay with time. Oh. I might be going through this a little faster. Okay, detecting errors in radiation. I do want to at least get through this topic. Um, do errors happen in radiation? I like to think no, but they do. Um, this was, these were highlighted in a series of New, uh, New York Times articles in 2010. A mm -hmm. um, uh, plan was transferred to the computer system incorrectly. There was, it was basically an electrical glitch, and a patient received for three treatments um, much, much more than... Um, it was intended, and um, it was eventually lethal. Uh, they highlighted a few other ones, including uh, breast cancer error. But at any rate, errors in the delivery of radiation, our regular estimate is 1% of treatments, and those are usually clinically insignificant events. After um, the New York Times articles, Astro Response says, um, was that this story cites 621 radiation mistakes during that time. So half a million New Yorkers who received 13.6 million daily radiation therapy treatments, meaning an error of 0.0046% of the time. You know, we'd like to add more zeros there. Um, uh, another, just another um, article of a group that put in a 
certain device to pick up errors, found 17 serious errors in their clinic in a four-year period. Um, the, um, this has happened in our clinic. It's not by any means devastating, but it's, it's hard on the patients. They lose a little bit of confidence. I told you how great our treatment is when we have them breathe a deep breath and deliver the treatment. We've had a um, human error mistake where the delivery was um, done without asking the patient to um, give a deep breath. You know, so the good news is that it, you're actually treating less of what you want, not more of the heart or anything like that. And I can actually make up for that when needed. Um, on further doses, but this is it's it's more of the confidence um, that the patient has when something like this happens so um, So the question is can we you know, why do these happen? I mean we, we know they happen for in every aspect of medicine um, at some low rate But you always try to improve that so one of the hard um, points of radiation is you can't see it you have to assume and rely on the fact that the computer all the Everything that you saw on the computer screen is now being delivered the way you really think it is. Um, but what if we could see the, if we could see our radiation? Well, everybody would have thought, I think, that we were crazy. But um, through the brilliance of uh, Brian Pogue and, and uh, David Gladstone, we can now see radiation. The trick is, um, it's Cherenkov admissions. This is the blue light that you get from um, at a nuclear reactor. It's when a particle goes faster than the speed of light. Um, Essentially, in that medium, um, essentially their whole trick was getting rid of background light um, by uh, synchronizing it to our radiation machines. And this is what we see and what we've learned that we can do. Well, this is still very early days. I think it was a year and a half ago when we started this project together. Um, for breast cancer patients, if we just put a camera in the room and image, we can see the radiation beam. It defines its field shape. This is what we planned on the field shape being, and there it is. It's reproducible. We went through um, now 12 patients and showed that each day, as long as the patient was set up the same, you know, it looked the same. Um, and in fact, we can use it to then define our accuracy. So um, uh, Rang Zhao from engineering took all our 12 patients we imaged and said, look, um, almost all of our treatments were within three millimeter of accuracies with a few outliers within four millimeters of what we planned. Um, we can see, so those errors that were talked about, um, one of the issues was that these, um, these are basically, there are MLCs, they're basically blocks from the radiation, um, blocking the radiation to the tissues. What happened with those is they didn't move. We can actually see, you can sit there at the, at our treatment console with the patient in the room and watch and we can see, oh look, the radiation, the blocks are moving, blocking the radiation, blocking the radiation. Um, we can see here, we can watch it as a video, those MLCs moving. They're going to come. There we go. Our MLCs are blocking the radiation just as we planned it to be. Um, I'm going to skip that. We, one, one night, Ranjao, David and I sat down and we simulated um, radiation errors to see what we could see different. So um, on the top, would be, so this is a breast phantom. You can't do this on patients. Um, this is the way we plan the radiation to have what's called a dynamic wedge come through. This is, and that's what the Cherenkov imaging looks like during the treatment. This is what it looks like if that wedge just didn't happen. Again, this is some MLCs that we designed, a field and field shape. This is if it didn't happen. Um, uh, so uh, one of the New York Times articles was a missing physical wedge. This is something we put in our machine. Um, and this is a treatment with the physical wedge in, and this is without. So we can distinguish. We can see the difference with all these um, simulated errors. We've now finished 12 patients, and I think I'm going to end with this. But basically, 12 patients, and we can see the radiation and image them on all of them. And... Let's see, yeah, we'll leave. Um, oh. And so we're hoping in the future that uh, today this is how things are done. You set up a patient on your treatment table. 
You take an x-ray to see if the patient's set up right, make your adjustments, you treat the patient blind, and once you come out with, uh, to be sure that you're right, is a bunch of numbers saying, oh, what the dose you gave is what you plan. So we're hoping that someday we'll be doing something like this. Uh, we've set up the patient. We do maybe keep the uh, x-rays, not quite sure, but we do some portal Cherenkov portal imaging where you check to see if your Cherenkov imaging looks right, and you continue to check this throughout the treatment with automatic beam holds, and then eventually you're going to have your, um, your video um, that you can watch after to make sure, and along with your numbers, you have a picture of your, your kind of surface dose that the patient received. And now I'm going to save this for another day, but go to our thank you. So the Chernkoff Group is, um, I acknowledge everybody here at Thayer School of Engineering, David, um, the EPR group I didn't get to talk about, but I think that's okay because over the next five years there's going to be a lot of work done um, with this group and you're going to be hearing a lot about them. And then I'd also like to thank the clinical group, clinical breast group, including my colleague who uh, treats all the breast cancers with me, Anna Ferris, the whole comprehensive breast program and the whole section of radiation oncology. That's it. <laughs> Uh, Leslie, thank you for a fantastic talk. Um, please, uh, for questions. Leslie, how do you, did I understand this correctly? And if so, how, how does one interpret that if there's a positive margin, there's a twofold increase in the chance of relapse, yep. but increasing the margin doesn't have an effect? Right. So, meaning that a positive versus a negative margin has an effect but getting beyond that does not. So you do need a negative margin, but that is defined as no distance um, between your margin and um, basically where your ink is in your tumor cell. The tumor cell can't be t touching the ink, but it doesn't matter how far. There's a lot of caveats to margin assessment. Uh, how you process, how you uh, you know, they even talk about the, you know, when you press on the tumor, you know, you're changing the margin, things like that. So it may be, um, it may be that, that, you know, which is not accurate in our, our um, assessment of how far that negative margin is. So, you know. The other thing, it's a little different. This does not apply to DCIS. DCIS has much more skip lesions. Invasive cancers are, grow much more, more commonly as a distinct ball, you know. And so between actually having it removed, doing um, our imaging beforehand, we do much, you know, everything has gotten better. And that's the whole point between we do um, post-excision um, lumpectomy specimen mammograms, so you're looking to make sure the tumor's all in there. You've done your pre-op MRIs. Now, all this stuff that ha wasn't done before. And so, for example, maybe people were failing before because they had a satellite lesion two centimeters away and nobody <laughs> ever knew it. Now we know that, so... Yeah. Hi, Mary. <laughs> In terms of the hypofractionation and yep. um, we make a lot of referrals to other smaller centers. Is it pretty well adapted in our region? They should. It is now something that, but as you see, nationwide, it's only, what was it, less than 30%. So um, I do know Keene hesitated on doing it for a long time. I know he's not hesitate. Well, if you ask him, he'll do it. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but they should. There should be no questions anymore about whether or not, in the right patient population at least, whether or not um, they should do it. Yeah. And they're joining our chart rounds, so we'll know for sure. <laughs> Before we didn't know what people did, but that now Keene and Bennington are, we're all doing co-QA um, on our, our um, plans. So. And Rutland is part of that? We're sharing across as much as we can. I think Rutland does more with you, um, Fletcher Allen. Sorry. Well, I think it's worth pointing out when you talk about hyperfractionation that um, a lot of the studies were done in countries where it's capitated. So those countries mm -hmm. have had incentives to actually 
reduce the healthcare resources that they're using. This actually Absolutely. shows kind of as the financial paradigm shifting in this country to capitation and ACOs, it kind of puts pressure on radiation oncology is, is still billing by, by fractionation. So you're not incented to actually do the hyperfractionation from a financial standpoint, even though all of the stuff all the data says it has the same outcome. That is the concern that that's why people haven't switched over. In that regard, Leslie, the rationale for fractionation had to do with the biology of the tumor and repair processes. And actually even more about normal tissue toxicity. So when we went to the big, and you're shortening the number of fractions, you're increasing the size of each fraction, so you're giving more each day. And that's equally effective on the tumor, but the concern was that you would then have more side effects on the normal tissue, that you have more fibrosis, maybe more rib fractures, worse cosmesis, things like that. Um, but for years, I mean, I even remember as a, as a resident in training, I sat at one of these tables with a Canadian trainee who was yelling at all of us, our breasts look fine, you know, what are you guys here just doing it for the money? Um, it wasn't that. We didn't know that it was fine. People weren't trained to do those short fractions. We were trained that they were scary to do the bigger fractions, the more side effects you're going to have. And it's taking time for people who, to get comfortable with something that was so ingrained in our heads. I think if you agree with me, you know, it's taken. Yeah, the, if I can just. Yeah. One, one David, I think that data was actually from Kaiser. No. The, well, what he's talking about is the actual Canadian trials and the no, UK no, I trials. But, but the data that showed slow adoption was from Kaiser. Uh, it was not Kaiser. The Kaiser one was um, poor adherence to um, tamoxifen. Okay, um, it's 14 um, independent healthcare or private healthcare systems insurer data. It would be very interesting to see what the patterns are in Kaiser versus yeah. some others. But does the good... Do the good outcomes with hypofractionation then suggest that we don't really know as much about normal tissue tolerance as we thought we did? Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe because we're getting better, our techniques are better, or um, the way we deliver radiation, less homogenous, uh, less inhibitory.